On Ash Wednesday, we entered into the season of Lent, and now we are in the second Sunday of Lent. And as we go through this season, we reflect on our mortality. We spend these 40 days journeying with Jesus to the cross where we receive our hope for immortality, and we celebrate that on Easter. And each week, we're going to take some time to focus on Jesus' suffering. Look at what he encountered on the way to the cross. And so last week, Camille talked about how Jesus was tested and how he was tempted. And today, we're going to reflect on the way that Jesus was abandoned. And so a few weeks ago, I had the honor to teach on the Lord's Supper. And we talked about remembering and giving thanks and breaking bread and drinking from the cup. And it said Jesus eagerly desired to do that. And then it, it ends by saying that they sang a hymn and they went to the Mount of Olives. Right after that, we see Jesus explain to Peter that he is going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. And right after that is where we pick it up this morning in Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two, two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them, and he went away one more time, or one more, and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. He then returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And if we jump ahead to verse 56... But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So the physical pain of crucifixion, the pain of taking on himself the absolute evil of sin, were aggravated by the fact that Jesus faced this pain alone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we as we read, that Jesus took with, Peter, took with him Peter, James, and John. And he confided in them about his agony. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. 
This, this is the kind of confidence one would disclose to a close friend. It implies a request for support in his hour of greatest trial. Jesus prayed, and they slept. And as soon as Jesus was arrested, they all left him. They deserted him and fled. And we see this faint analogy of our own experience. For we don't have to live long without tasting the inward ache of rejection. Whether it be rejection or abandonment by a close friend, a parent, a child, a husband, a wife. Yet in all those cases, we can at least sense there's something that we could have done differently. At least a small part of it that may be our own fault. That was not so with Jesus. It wasn't so with Jesus and his disciples. We see in John 13, verse 1, it says, He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Jesus had done nothing but love these people. And in return, they abandoned him. But far worse than being abandoned by even his closest human friends was the fact that Jesus was deprived of the closeness to the Father. And that closeness to the Father had been his deepest joy of his heart for his entire earthly life. And we see Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He showed that he was finally cut off from the sweet fellowship with his heavenly Father. The sweet fellowship that had been his unfailing source of his inward strength and the element of his greatest joy in a life filled with sorrow. As Jesus bore our sin on the cross, he was abandoned also by his heavenly Father, who the Old Testament said has eyes are too pure to look at evil. Jesus faced the weight of the guilt of all humanity's sin. He suffered alone and abandoned. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your unconditional love you show for us, for all you have done, all you are doing, and all you promise to do. And Jesus, we confess and we repent of all the ways in our lives that we too have abandoned you. Because Jesus, you are worthy of all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. So this morning, we offer you our hearts. We offer you our praise, our worship, our adoration. Jesus, we pray that it would be pleasing to you. We welcome you in this place. We welcome you here as Andrew brings your word and as we offer you our worship. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Judd. Jesus suffered by being abandoned, and 
think Judd did a great job of, of bringing that right here. I think each week we want to look at how Jesus suffered for us and not just kind of a quick move on, but just bring it right here for a little bit. And then each week we're going to talk about uh, our sexuality and all kinds of things related to that. But my hope is that by bringing how Jesus suffered right here, when we move on to talk about what the Bible says about sexuality, that would stay pretty close. Because I think there's a way that bringing those two things together, our brokenness and our sexuality, and how Jesus suffered, the different ways that Jesus suffered, there is something about bringing those two things together. So that's what we're going to do. Now, I'd like to just put two things on the table as we talk about sexuality, and I think I'll probably do this each week. One of those is that the church um, often has been, uh, has caused pain in relation to sexuality and in, in how they respond to it, how we respond to it. Um, and I, I mean this in just the general sense, um, partly because if certain sins, sexual sins become public or get exposed, there is a uh, intensity in how the church responds to that compared to how they respond to other sin. Partly there's an inconsistency. There's especially um, a lot of very painful, evil, sinful uh, attitudes and actions towards people who are LGBTQ from the church historically. Uh, so that is, all, that is all part of what we need to be aware of as we talk about sexual uh, sexuality. Now, what is also true, and I think increasingly so in recent years, is that um, maybe partly in response to that, it's easy for the church to uh, do everything that we can to not do that. And in part of doing everything that we can to not um, be mean-spirited, be evil, be opposite of the the attitude of Jesus towards people, um, we just don't talk about it. And in, in putting it in the background, what I sense might be happening is that a generation of us are coming up now who don't know what the Bible says about sexuality. And when what the Bible says about sexuality is proposed, there is a, almost a response from people who, we are Christians, but there's a response that says, well, that's not right. What the Bible says about sexuality can sometimes feel unnatural to us because we have all sorts of messages coming our way about sexuality, and those start to seem feel what's right because we're less inclined to talk about the hard things that the Bible says about sexuality, which are for our good, but it's hard. So what we want to do is try to be like Jesus. We want to try to be like Jesus, who was so full of love and grace and compassion that people who had much sexual brokenness, that people who were outcast because of their uh, sexual brokenness just felt comfortable around him. 
and restored by him and came to him and felt his love. We want to be like that and have that spirit. And that same Jesus spoke truth, spoke very clearly about sexuality. And so we want to know, what is it that he said? So in the coming weeks, just so you know, next week what we're going to talk about is that Jesus suffered by being misunderstood and slandered. And then we're going to talk about trans and gender stereotypes. The week after that, we're going to reflect on how Jesus suffered by being betrayed. And we're going to talk about what the Bible says and what Jesus says about divorce and cohabitation. Then the week after that, Jesus suffered by being tormented. And we're going to talk about sexual violation and abuse of power. Now, last Sunday, when the series started, we, we talked about Jesus suffered by being tempted and tested. So Jesus knew where things were going. He knew he was going to have to suffer. He knew he was going to have to suffer. It was going to be, he was going to suffer leading up to an event where he suffered the ultimate thing. And Judd described that so well about the whole weight of sin being put on him, about being abandoned by God. He knew that was going to happen. And what the devil was whispering all the time to him is, there's another way. You don't deserve this. You deserve better. You could try something different. There's, there's another way. That's what was whispered to him. And so when Peter says, this will never happen, what Jesus knows has to happen for our sake, when Peter says, this will never happen, he says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because that's the thing that Jesus just really wishes. What, what Judd just read, like, take this cup from me. I want the easy way. And yet, even though Jesus was tempted and tested with an easier way, he still went all the way, loved him to the end, and suffered. He did not give in to the testing and the temptation. Now, we, we talked about, and I'm going to read uh, again where, the, where this came from, how Jesus affirmed the idea started um, first given in Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning of the Bible, of two becoming one. And two becoming one means marriage, meaning two people from different families, a man and a woman, different life, they come together and have one life. They share one life together. They become one unit together. It's a lifelong covenant they make with each other. They are going to be committed to one life together. Their two lives are going to come one life together until death do them part. That's the covenant. And within that, there is a way in which two become one sexually. It's a way that consummates it. It's the way that says this is happening. It's a way that renews that, that commitment. There's a quote by Tim Keller that says, Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. That's how God designed it. That sex would happen within the covenant of marriage. That two would become one sexually within them becoming one in a lifelong commitment together. That's the design. That's the ideal. Now the challenge, the challenge to that is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity that's happening from people that are not to, in a covenant lifelong covenant together of marriage. 
So any sex outside of that lifelong covenant of marriage is sexual immorality. And we looked at the, the New Testament, we looked at a number of passages about how significant God says it is when there is sexual immorality last week. And Jesus, we didn't look at a passage, Jesus did not talk about that as much, partly because he was with the Jewish people who everyone agreed with the rules. They may not have lived them out, they may have abused them, but, but everyone knew this was the best way. Or this was what God said was the way. So it wasn't a controversy, but he did say that out of the, out of the evil of our hearts is what can defile us, and then he lists murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So he does call sex outside of marriage sin. But he takes it one step further. And we did look at the passage in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, where he says it's not just committing adultery. It is anyone who looks at another person lustfully is committing adultery in their hearts. He's talking about the attitude and the thought life we have that leads to adultery and that leads to sexual morality. And then he starts to talk about hellfire and cutting off limbs and poking out eyes as a way to say, this is how big of a deal it is. Like, this, this is not good for our souls. This is the kind of thing that can pull us away from the path toward eternity. So he actually, I feel like, raises the bar. So with that, let's look again what we looked at last week because our starting point is what is Jesus saying about sexuality? What is Jesus saying? So Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus, as I had said earlier, he takes verse 4 and he quotes Genesis chapter 1. He takes verse 5, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2. And he is saying the two become one, what that means, just like I explained earlier. And then in verse 6, he doubles down and says, so they are no longer two, but one. He's saying, I agree with this. This is what's right. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let's go on. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Divorce was not what God intended. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, we will talk about divorce in a couple weeks. So I'll nuance it, because divorce is very painful, and just to have these words just kind of throw out can... can um, yeah, I, I, we need to talk about it in, in more detail and nuance. But here's, here's what I want to point out. Because the very next verse, what we're going to see is Jesus' disciples, the people that say, we want to follow you and learn from you and live your ways, 
they respond to his teaching on marriage and sexuality. They respond to it. So what are they going to say when he just taught, going back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, here's what it means, here's what marriage is, here's how you come together, what's their response going to be? I mean, my thought is that their response is going to be like, yes, I want a marriage like that. I want a marriage like you're saying marriage should be, Jesus. What is their response? Verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Really? I mean, Jesus just taught on marriage. This is how marriage should be. Uh, Maybe it's better not to get married. Why did they say that? Well, it had to do with the, the significance of divorce, the implications of divorce. And when they saw the implications of divorce, they say it's better not to marry. Is it possible that a generation that has experienced a lot of divorce from their parents, my generation, would wonder... Maybe it's better not to marry. And then a generation younger than me, who a big group of them said, maybe it's better not to marry, and kind of did their own kinds of ways of family and life, and then another one that did marry, but then lots of divorce, would say, it's better not to marry. So that now, the generation that's coming up Postponing marriage, way more cohabitation, often not even deciding to get married ever. Redefinitions of marriage. Polymory is a big thing. Multiple partners. Is it because of what we've experienced in divorce? Now again, I want to talk about divorce in a couple weeks because divorce is painful. And one of the things that has happened and can happen even if, if no one's intending it or people are doing well, is that the church can cause more pain to divorce people instead of help love divorce people. So I want to be really clear about that. We're not there yet. But it is striking to me, this response. It gets crazier. Because what's Jesus, how's Jesus going to respond to them? Isn't Jesus going to say No. You don't understand. Marriage is good. I want to encourage you to get together with a. I want to encourage you to do this. Here's what he says next Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs. We're going to talk about eunuchs? Eunuchs. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus says, you know what's really good? To commit your life to being single. Single like a eunuch, which would mean celibate and single, which would mean single and committed to abstinence. Now many today 
got half that. I'm going to remain unmarried, but not the abstinence part. So we're going to talk today about one of the ideals put forth in the Bible related to our sexuality, and that's celibate singleness. That's committing to abstinence if we are unmarried. I mean, the word celibate sounds kind of archaic. Like, we don't use it anymore. It's just like, boy, it's like an antique word we're going to pull out here and say, what are we, celibate, eunuchs? This is all getting very strange. But to commit to abstinence if we're unmarried is the biblical ideal. And I'm telling you, just try to have a conversation and throw that in the mix. Just in, at the bar or whatever. It's going to be... I mean, not as your pickup line, obviously. <laughs> this is what happens when you don't have a script. Okay. <laughs> Unplanned moments. Okay. But what is the challenge? I want to talk about two challenges today. So the first challenge I want to talk to celibate singleness is romantic idolatry. We live in a world that idolizes romance and sex. So, the Bible says in 1 John, God is love. God is love. And the Greek word for love, that we translate to love, is agape. Now, that kind of love is a giving love, with not expecting anything return. It is a love that says, I am going to do for your good. I desire your good, and I'm going to do what I can for what would be good for you, regardless of what's coming back to me. That's who God is. That's his essence, is just giving. I'm going to do your good. I'm going to will your good. That is regardless of what comes back to me. God is love. That's who he is. But we live in a world where love is God and not agape love. There's another Greek word for, that we translate love, eros. That has to do with romantic love. Sexual love, erotic, eros, that kind of love. It's a love that says, I want to be satisfied. I need to get fulfilled. I need to be made happy. And the way that I see and hear, it's coming at me all the time in the movies that I watch, the videos I watch, what's posted all the time is the best way is if, if I've got somebody or somebody's or having a good time or having my pleasures. And that becomes the top priority, then it's an idol. If romance and finding someone else and sex becomes the top and God comes down here, now we have an idol. And what is driving our decisions around relationships and around sex? What is driving it? God who is love and what he says is best? Or what just seems like, well, but I couldn't possibly give up. In fact, to say that a person should is cr considered cruelty, abusive. I mean, these are the words. To say that you are going to give up something because God is love and this is what he says is the best way, to suggest that is cruel, wrong, abusive, well, then we have something else becoming more important. 
So, let's look at another passage from first or from first Corinthians chapter seven from Paul. Now Paul is writing this, and many scholars think Paul was at one time married, but he's a widower. He was either single his whole life or a widower. He was definitely single when he's writing this, as, as we'll see. Now, about virgins, so this would be their, their way of saying um, unmarried women, unmarried, yeah, single women, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to, to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Now, in churches, my experience is we don't, this is, this is not a message that you hear very often. And it's not a like message that comes across in the ethos of the of how we are together. There's a way in which marriage gets put way up as this is the best. And if you're not, you should really be getting there sometime soon. There's never a sense of like, you know what? There's something good about being single for your faith. And we want to encourage you in that too. It's usually, there's just usually not a lot of that, especially if you're younger. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is this, that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if they were, it was not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engross them, for this world in its present form is passing away. So earthly, temporary things, don't put our major focus on that. That's the summary of that paragraph. Verse 32 I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of, this world, affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, this is, this is just a reality, right? A, a person who is single will have more flexibility, time, and energy most to devote to the Lord, a person who is married and has five children and wants to love them well will not do the same things that, that I would do if I were single. That's just true. Now, there is something really good about being married. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. You, your spouse, God, there is something about that, a partnership. We, we can go into all that, but that's what's most often talked about. I mean, this isn't the verse that you read at a wedding, right? So we, we hear, where I go to the weddings, we hear about all this stuff, about why it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It is good. But there's another reality too. They're both good. And I think what we tend to do is if we're single, 
It's like, oh, man, it's so much better if I was married. And if I was married, no, I would never say that. <laughs> but there is a way in which where my discontent comes from in lack of flexibility in what I can't do and what I've had to give up. In it. There's, the grass can look greener. And we can not be grateful for the place God's put us in and always think, well, it must be better over there. Verse 36, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. By the way, that's how the proposal went for me. I know it's better not to get married, but my passions are so strong I can't control myself. And so for the sake of the Lord, super romantic. All right. I lost where I'm at. Is it verse 37? But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has controlled over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Oof. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Now, this is true said in other spots too. There's a way earlier in, first, in this very chapter, it talks about if you are married and you come to know the Lord and say, the Lord's the most important thing in my life, but the person you're married to isn't, you stay in the marriage. If the person's willing to stay in the marriage, you stay in the marriage. And you pray that this is where they get to. But if you're not married and you come into this relationship with the Lord, and you have someone who you want to be in relationship but is not there, the Bible says don't do it. Because more likely, gravity. Well, there's a chance, and I've seen it, that you could pull them up. What is more likely is you get pulled down. And if your number one priority is devotion to the Lord, then what you want to look for is someone else who has that same priority. And then you can help each other do it. But if your number one devotion, priority is devotion to the Lord, and that person's priority is not, then you can try, but you have to keep negotiating how this works. And it can be very, very challenging. So the last verse. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Now... My main reason for going through this is to show that uh, singleness is something that the Bible says can be a really good thing. I don't think that's how we talk about it or how it often feels in the church. And thinking about different kinds of singleness. So I'm thinking about people who've never been married. I'm thinking about people who've been divorced, I'm thinking of people whose spouse has died, and you come into singleness. Or, if we're talking about just what it feels like in the church, what about when you come but your spouse doesn't? Then you feel single at church. How do we do in that? Because I want to get to the second challenge. The second challenge is a feeling of isolation. This is very real. A feeling of, if I don't have the partner in life, then I feel lonely. 
then I'm not sure who's there for me. I mean, Jesus quoting Genesis 1 and 2, and last week I told you he, who he's quoting it to, they got the whole thing memorized. It's there. He's not just pointing out a couple spots. They know the whole context. Well, part of the context is it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper. Oh, no. I got to explain that word, but I don't have time. A partner, a suitable partner for him. Okay? And, well, if I'm single, it's not good to be alone, then I feel like I'm missing something. Now, that's true. It's not good for humans to be alone. But marriage is not the only solution to that. Right? If what we're looking for so that we aren't alone is intimacy, then not only is marriage not the only solution for that, but sex isn't the only solution for that. Because in a hookup culture, I don't think that's a lot of intimacy. Just swipe right. I don't know that it's intimacy. Compared to a friendship, could have a lot of intimacy. And by the way, in marriage, you can be married and very lonely. You can be married and feel lonelier because you're married, but you don't have that kind of connection. Many, many people experience that in marriage. To be rejected in marriage and still be married is very lonely. To feel used in marriage and be still married is very lonely. And, eat, and that's going to happen in most marriages. We're going to feel those things, right? Now, we can, part of the beauty of marriage is we stay in it long enough that we could work it through. That's the best case scenarios is when you're working it through. But in terms of intimacy, that can come through friendships as well. And we should, if, if as a single person, I am not fulfilled, I am not, I feel like I am just missing it all, marriage will not solve all that. That is too much to put on marriage. And if you're married, divorce won't solve it all. It's not that you're going to find someone else. There is just, there is, only God can be God, is what I'm trying to say. Only God can be God. So part of all of this in our sexuality is we've got to put God up as God. He's the one that we can worship. He's the one that we can look to ultimately for all our needs. And then with that in place, then we can make our relationships much better. Now, here are six books. I've read most of these within the last year or so. The common denominator of these six books is that they were all written by people who, would, who are Christians. I'd say they're Christians, profess to be Christians. And they're all written by people who would describe themselves either as gay or same-sex attracted. Okay? Now, four of these people who wrote this are committed to lifelong celibacy. 
One of these people is, was, thought that was their path, but is married to, um, she's a woman, she's married to a man now, even though she's not really attracted to men. That wasn't her path, that's not what she would recommend, I'm just giving you the, but that's what, what is she's doing and what's working. Another person that wrote is, um, believes that uh, same-sex marriage is okay, monogamous same-sex marriage is okay. I don't agree with, this, with his conclusion there, and I'll talk about that in a few weeks, but what I appreciate about reading him is how he helped me to see what it would be like to be same-sex attracted. And we'll also talk about terminology because there's problems with any kind of terminology you use based on who you're talking to, but I'm just going to use same-sex attracted for now. So, what I find incredibly inspiring from is that they would say in all kinds of different ways, in all kinds of different stories, despite being most of them very hurt by the church, but also some of them having great, experiencing God's love through the church and through people in the church, God's most important to me. So I know I'm not going to get married, but I'm going to follow him. And as one says, so Sam Albury I read his book, what was his book I read last week? Why Does God Care Who We Sleep With? Let's just get it out there, huh? Very good book. By the way, in a few weeks, I'm going to just, on the website, and I might even put them out there, just all kinds of books and what I recommend and think would be helpful. But his seven myths about singleness is just really, really good. And and he says, you know, here's the thing for me. When I became a Christian, he became a Christian, I think, when he was 18 or 19 or 20, I just saw what Jesus did for me. When I, experienced, when I realized that this was for me, like not just that he died for the world, but he did this for me, when I knew how good that was, then I just trust him. I just trust him. So if he says this is what's best, it's going to be best. Now it's been hard. Has he cried? Has he agonized? Has he, yeah. But he says, but I trust how good he is. I just trust him. But in reading those books, one of the things that just got to me, a burden that they carry is, so what about when they get old? Who is their family when they get old? If they're committed to this decision, who's their family? And Sam said, Sam Albury said, a verse that he just hangs on to very tightly is Mark chapter 10. It's a few verses, 28 through 30. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. 
And he said, that verse just did something for me. In the present age, all these things. Well, how does that work out? Well, here's what he's experienced. He has experienced all kinds of people who've opened up their homes to him. Brothers and sisters. Friendships. He's experienced all kinds of that. That's just been his path. There are things that have been hard, particularly when those close people to him would move or something like that. But one of the common reports is, you know, we would like to be included in family. We'd like to be included in family. Not just like, you, not just the times where you have people over and you clean up the house and everything's nice. He's like, that feels like entertainment. We're being entertained, and that's good. But we like it when we just drop in. When we're just part of the family. Now, Jesus said, when his mother and his brothers were right outside the door trying to get in, who are my mothers and brothers? Here they are. Whoever does the will of God are my mothers and brothers and sisters. Whoever hears the word of God or obeys it are my brothers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And then throughout the New Testament, over and over again, there is family language that is used. And so whether gay or straight, when people are single, are we being a church that creates a sense of family? That is a sense of we are here for each other. Fellowships within the fellowship. Are we there for each other? Last week, I was at the, the crosswalk closing, and different people shared what the, the crosswalk building has meant to them. Now, a number of them, the, the ministry was just happening at the well, and they just drove over from the well for, for it. So it's the ministry's going on, but it's in a different location. But we're just still talking about what, what happened at the building. And Camille and I were struck by words that were repeated over and over again as people shared. Sense of family. Safe. It was safe. This is from people who said, I've never gone to church before. And this is just, you know, a few years ago. This is from people who are there to serve. What they've done there, usually, they've read a Bible passage. They have uh, ate a meal together. They have prayed for each other. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship. Oh, and they're sharing of resources together. Most, a lot of these connections happen between people who serve at the food pantry and who go to the food pantry. That's what a lot of apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer, they've been doing that. And it feels safe, and it feels like family, and they know someone's there for them, and there's all kinds of different people in there. And that's what they describe. Well, we can do that. We can do that in our own homes. We can open up. We can encourage. We can invite. I, I mean, as I've thought about this, I'll be honest, part of me has just been like, man, we just aren't very good at this as a church. Now, to my surprise, I talked to, I think, three different single people here in the last few weeks. And each of them said, actually, no. The church has been great for me. I do feel like it's a sense of family for me. There have been people who've been here for me. So it'd be tempting for me to be like, yeah, I knew it. All right, good, check, off. That's not how I feel. I feel like thank you to those of you who are family to each other. 
here, especially to people who are single. And let's keep doing better, starting right here. Let's keep doing better at being family. Because that is really what we long for. See, sex, sex is this, you know, shiny object that, yes, that's going to, that's what you need. That's what's going to make you fulfilled. That's what's going to, you complete all that. No. Outside of the right context, it's empty. What we're longing for is friendship and intimacy and family. That's what we're longing for. And sex can be part of that in a marriage. But that's what we're, but it doesn't, just sex doesn't do that. And even sex itself, even marriage itself, is just a signpost to what we're really longing for, which is what we're going to get in eternity, where there's true family, where there's true intimacy, where there's no more rejection or death or pain or suffering. Marriage is a signpost to the connection with the Lord that we're going to, it just points the way, it's just a picture. It's a great picture, and we can live into it. But let's live into it God's way. So, need to come to a close. God's ideal is celibate singleness. Our challenges are making romantic idolatry, making romance, sex, that kind of thing, the driver in our lives. Or the isolation that happens while we're in singleness or feeling like we're all alone or we're less than or anything like that. So what is our response? I want to suggest a couple things. One is, I forgot what the first one is. So the second one is, oh, well, one is just, I mean, we need to decide. We need to decide where are we at on this this whole hand gesture thing I've been doing. If this is the Lord, and this is our relationships, romantic relationships, what's the driver? We just we need to decide that. And if it's the Lord, and we trust Him, then it it might be hard decisions to make. But that's one of our responses is to say like I trust you, and so I'm going to have you. You can speak into relationships and how this works and I want to do it your way. The other thing I think for us that I've been trying to prod toward the end, let's be family. Let's find ways to be family. Let's welcome in family. The next sermon series we do is going to keep pushing at this. We've been talking about practice gathering, but we're also going to talk about kingdom hospitality. How do we invite people in and not just those that we're already closest to? How do we invite people and let's be family together? Now, what is Jesus' response? What is Jesus' response to our challenges and our brokenness? What is Jesus' response? Jesus was willing to be abandoned for us. He knows loneliness and isolation more than any other human being has ever known it. If you can get last 
slides here, the, these two passages. We read ver, uh, Hebrews 13. I'm going to read it off there, yeah. We read Hebrews 13, verse 4 last week. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The next verse. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How about that with marriage and singleness, too? Be content with where you're at, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus was willing to be abandoned so that he could fulfill that promise to you. The very last thing he said in Matthew, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I allowed God the Father to abandon me so that he will never abandon you if you come to me. Jesus says, come to me. And I will never leave you, never forsake you. Psalm 27, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will not forsake me. And Jesus was suffered by being abandoned so that he could say that and mean it and fulfill it. He will never leave you or forsake you. Your mom forsakes you, abandons you, the Lord will not. Your dad does, the Lord will not. Your husband does, the Lord will not. Your wife does, the Lord will not. Your boyfriend does, your girlfriend does, he will not. Your best friend does, he will not. All your friends do. He will not. All his friends did. He never will. That's part of what we get when we come to Jesus. We get the reality that no matter if everyone else goes, he will never leave us and never forsake us. Let's pray. Jesus, this is hard. It is hard to live out what you say is best and to trust that. Because it's so easy to be lonely or discouraged or self-hating. It's so easy to feel like we're missing out or others have it better. It's so, it's so easy to just give up. So we need you. We need to know the reality that you are with us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Would you bring that reality deeper into us today? And we need that reality to happen not just with you, but through your people. Would you send your Holy Spirit in a way that many of us in this room could be that for someone else could be the friend the family that we're needing the companionship that we're needing and would you send your Holy Spirit in a way that we also would receive that many in this room would have received that through someone else Re receive the love the friendship the companionship the intimacy that we're needing through your body Thank you that you 
were willing to be abandoned so that we would never be forsaken. May they not, that not just be a promise in our head, but God somehow put it deep into our hearts that we would really know it and believe it and experience it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite the prayer ministers and the elders who will be serving communion to come forward and, and get in place. During Lent, we're having, having an opportunity for you to take communion after the service every week, if you so choose. Um, I know there's a lot of hard things that are going on um, that aren't even related to sexuality, and so if you need prayer for anything related to that or not, um, there'll be prayer ministers available. One thing before the blessing that I just want to say is that when we talk about the ideal, God's ideal for sexuality, it can make many of us feel like, oh, I knew I wasn't worthy. I know I can't go. Just to remind you again that the gospel is not you get all cleaned up and then you can come to Jesus. It's that you come to Jesus and he helps clean us up. And we don't just come once and then we have to hold it together the rest of our lives. We come and we keep coming. So whoever will can come this morning. Come to Jesus. Let him minister to you. And whenever you go, may the grace of this Jesus and the love of God the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit go with you now and always. Amen.